Welcome to FinTech in the Cloud with AWS, your direct line to the founders, investors, and startups who are shaping the ever-evolving world of FinTech. I'm your host, Sakine Damanga. Joining us today is CEO and co-founder of Zero Hash, Edward Woodford. In today's podcast, Edward defines the notion of crypto as a service and how it correlates within the embedded finance ecosystem. He also highlights key trends in the ever-evolving world of digital assets and how they will influence the future of fintech. I learned quite a bit on this episode. I hope you will too. Enjoy. Hi, Edward. Welcome and thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. We like to start off with understanding your journey to fintech. Are you able to tell us a bit about your journey to fintech as well as your current role today and how it's applicable in the whole fintech ecosystem? So I went to grad school here in the States, graduated from MIT and launched the business that effectively was my first foray into fintech. We were launching an alternative commodities market. And so we were regulated by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. I learned the really tough lesson that in financial services, there's a lot of necessary condition for success, but very few sufficient conditions. And one of those necessary conditions is being regulated. And so we spent about two years getting regulated. And then when we launched, we realized, hey, we're probably about 10 years too early with the product. And so then we had a reasonably soft landing, managed to sell off the regulatory assets. But it really inspired me to move and become very interested into the infrastructure business, lowering those barriers to entry, allowing companies, big or small, to launch products without the need, firstly, to be regulated, and secondly, without the need to build out large, complex technical stacks. And that was the inspiration behind ZeroHash. Effectively, we are crypto as a service. I serve as a CEO today, and we basically enable any group, whether it be a consumer business, a retail broker, a neobank, a payment group, to offer the ability to buy, sell, hold, send, and receive, or even reward or round up crypto assets. I love that. I love that your journey started very differently from what it is today within fintech, but regulations, I'm sure, is something that you're still going to experience in this new world of crypto specifically. Vernacular is important when talking about anything related to crypto or digital assets, given that it's still evolving in real time and not everyone fully grasps it. How would you break down your value proposition for someone who is new to the space and may not fully comprehend the verbiage? We get into this quite a bit. So ultimately, cryptography, which is the foundation of all digital crypto assets, is a technology. And so we view cryptography as a technology that can be used for anything. For example, it can be included for art, right? Art can be put as a cryptographic asset. And that's where we've seen, for example, NFTs. It could be the way that securities are transferred can be done on a blockchain. And then there's obviously commodities as well, whether they be physical commodities such as tokenized gold or intangible commodities such as Bitcoin. So fundamentally, when we talk about digital assets, we're talking about the technology. Where ZeroHash focuses is on non-security tokens, effectively everything from NFTs to things like Bitcoin. What we do is we have a couple of value props for our partners. So we're a B2B to C business. So every end customer is legally a customer of ours, but we effectively enable groups to launch crypto to their customers via our APIs and own the entire client experience. And so effectively, and I'll give you one example, for example, a group called Tastyworks, which is now owned by IG, 
Tastyworks has hundreds of thousands of customers that trade there every single day. And their clients were asking about crypto. And so they now offer crypto through the same front ends that their customers like and are used to, but versus trading, for example, a stock of Apple, they're now trading a fractional part of Bitcoin. So that's effectively one use case. We also have other use cases such as credit card companies. So when you swipe your credit card versus just getting cash back in cash or points, you can, for example, convert that into crypto automatically. So when you go get your Starbucks, you earn 2 3% back in your favorite crypto. So really, we are the API infrastructure and we allow innovators to innovate on top of that core infrastructure. I like that. I like that a lot. So essentially, you are obviously an API-driven business offering crypto as a service, which in, in a sense is related to the whole embedded finance umbrella. So yeah. is that an accurate assessment? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, you can say, look, banking as a service exists, brokerage as a service exists, payments as a service exists. And we see this as this new vertical of crypto as a service. Exactly that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So it's, it's interesting how the whole notion of embedded finance just keeps growing in terms of what can be encompassed within that core umbrella. And the notion of crypto as a service, I feel like is just the beginning of potentially more other as a service components within this whole digital asset ecosystem. So I love that. That's kind of what you're leading with, because it's definitely a key vertical within embedded finance right now, especially in the moment that crypto is really rising so quickly. And so you mentioned that you are a B2B to see organization. So are you able to just give us an example of a particular customer and a use case that you work with today that can help us fully understand crypto as a service? Absolutely. I'll give you a real example of what people call a, a fintech or challenger bank. And the example there is Moneyline, which is now a publicly listed company. They have millions of customers that use them every single day for a range of services. You can buy into the thesis around the super app, right? But there's definitely this trend of one app being able to do a lot, you able to buy stocks, you bank, you can get loans, you can get your insurance, everything through one app. And so I think the broader context to this is that that's maybe one of the drivers for a group like Moneyline to offer to assets. Now, what does that mean in practice? Now, we offer a range of different endpoints that can be productized. So for example, today, if you go to Moneyline, you can buy a range of crypto assets. So you can buy, sell, and hold them. If you use their credit card, you can get crypto rewards. If you use their credit card and you enable a roundup feature, you can round up to crypto, which means that effectively, say you buy a cup of coffee for $5.50, you'll get 50 cents back in whatever crypto that you want. I think one thing as well that we're excited to offer all partners, including Moneyline, is staking. So if you buy a proof of stake asset and you're a long-term hodler, as people say, you want to earn a reward, a rate of return effectively on those assets. And so those are proof of stake assets that you opt in to stake through ZeroHash, and then you earn rewards for that. So say you have 100, for example, Solana. In a year's time, you may have 105 Solana. So the rewards are paid out in the underlying crypto asset that you hold. Very cool. I love that proposition. I think what we've seen is the spin wheel effect that crypto really becomes embedded into the overarching product. So you buy something, you get crypto, then you may sell it or you may buy some more. And what we've seen is because crypto, for better or worse, is something that excites people, is something that is relatively volatile. People check the price, they check their rewards. And so what we've seen is that customers who opt into crypto and 
use crypto, engage more heavily with the application. So that's the feedback from partners is not only is it a meaningful revenue line, not only is it a meaningful value add to customers, but it actually allows the platform this kind of additional effect, which is that you're using the application more, which increases the stickiness and you may use other services. Yeah, there's an interesting fascination with crypto and in all types of verticals. And I could see consumers or end users really fascinated in making sure that they actually, the rewards are making sense and they're quantifiable. So I could see the dynamic and where stickiness comes into play here. Mm-hmm. And it's a great proposition just for a super app that's obviously trying to embed an additional value added service to it. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, our thesis is that every single financial services company in some form will be a crypto company. And how you productize is up to you, but we provide the APIs to enable you to do so. Just to switch gears a little bit, obviously we're talking about fintech and in the cloud and and how that typically works. What role would you say AWS played in some of your development? And at what point was cloud identified in your journey? AWS does a pretty good job of being supportive of early stage startups. So in our first business, we got a lot of credit for AWS and that, that means something when you're at that stage. We are a cloud-based business. We actually used to have physical infrastructure, actually on-prem and data centers. But we moved away from that because of improvements, but also just customers weren't kind of looking for the latency that maybe other markets have. Where maybe an interesting case study around AWS with us, I mean, AWS obviously provides a similar service, right? It lowers the barriers to entry to enable you to spin up infrastructure very, very quickly. And you can obviously draw the parallels there. But for example, and I've mentioned staking just now, with staking, without going too much into the detail, you have to maintain nodes, validator nodes. And so we spin up these nodes through AWS. And one of the key things is obviously to have multi-region redundancy in all these different pieces. And so for us, that's the benefit. We can spin up nodes very quickly. We can offer more assets very quickly just from a financial institution perspective, right? AWS gives us that comfort about multi-region redundancy and all the other features that you know well. Obviously, you talk about multi-region redundancy and the other tools that you've actually leveraged with the credits that you had from Activate and inception of your development and migrating from on-prem to cloud. Can you recall any particular tool that you found to make it much easier to start and to build on the cloud as you were checking the boxes to accelerate your proposition? What's been helpful is really the people. I think as we've scaled and maybe (laughs) candidly become a bigger customer of AWS, just the thought partnership on different pieces has become really, really helpful um, as we think through different challenges, different things. Fundamentally, a lot of the infrastructure that we deploy, so for example, nodes, is a relatively new concept. And so applying that, best practices, different things, uh, being able to have that thought partnership has certainly been helpful. Interesting. So now, Edward, I feel like there's a marriage that is occurring between traditional FSI and fintech at the moment, essentially a mutual beneficial partnership. And it feels as though crypto is in this courting stages. So not married yet to FSI or traditional FSI. Would you agree that they're slowly migrating into this whole marriage? And then right now they're still in a bit of a courtship. So they're not fully embedded with traditional financial services. That's definitely the case for, I'd say, the really large banks, but they are very, very, very interested in everything from wealth managers thinking through a younger generation and how they think about digital assets. And I do believe that we will get a large bank into the space within the next 12 months. By large bank, I'm talking a market cap of above 300 billion. 
But if you look at everything but banks, at least in the United States, we now see some of the largest brokerage firms, some of the largest neobanks, some of the largest buy now, pay later, some of the largest payment groups such as FIS, checkout.com, Stripe, now being able to offer crypto payouts in stable coins, including USDC. So I think the adoption cycle, there's a lot of, as a, to use your analogy, there's, there's a lot of marriages that have been made. I think there'll be a lot more. And I think you'll get the top end of banks into the space as well. But if you're looking outside of the United States, such as, for example, in Brazil, you're starting to see massive adoption across some of the largest financial institutions there. So I think it's a question. Also, if you look at, for example, APAC region, the banks there are moving very, very quickly into the space. So it matters about the geography and I think about the type of group. But going back to our thesis that every financial institution will be a crypto company in some form. I believe you will see that over the next 12 months. Do you have international presence at the moment, or is it formally really focused on North America? Yeah, so from a people perspective, we're actually about 50% based in the United States and 50% based out of the United States. We're about 140 people now. And our second largest jurisdiction is Brazil, from a people perspective. From a customer perspective, we're pretty global. We have, for example, one of the largest brokers in Japan as a client, GMO, We have large European company and payment on-ramps, groups like MoonPay, Transac, and others as customers as well. But it is right to say that today, the majority of our revenue comes from, when you think about B2B2C, the end customer majority are still US-based, but I think that will begin to evolve and adapt. This year, we're getting regulated in Australia, Hong Kong, and Germany and beginning the application in Brazil, which still isn't formally in the place. So we are really putting a big emphasis on geographic expansion from a regulatory perspective. We already have put a big focus on people in different parts of the world. Yeah, the reason I asked is because you you made a really great point earlier around how geographies is still quite important as you think about where crypto is within this whole courtship versus marriage analogy. And I do agree with you that I think in some other markets, they really found a nice way to embed crypto in a way that's just naturally organically molding together with FSIs. You mentioned something earlier around the next 12 months will be different for some large financial institutions. Fast forward to after 12 months, where do you think crypto will be pertaining to fintech in the next two to five years? I'm curious to get your predictions. My view is that If you look at crypto today, right, and and using this broad term, crypto as an investment vehicle is clearly here. That will massively grow. I think you'll see some of the bank holding brokers such as Charles Schwab, Morgan Stanley, E-Trade enter the space. I think personally, we're very interested in bullish is crypto as a payment mechanism. Today, crypto still hasn't really proven itself as a payment mechanism. And I think there's two drivers there. One is the growth of better scaling solutions beyond Ethereum for stable coins. So right now, it's very expensive to use Ethereum stable coins. So getting those costs down through layer twos and new layer ones, I think will be huge. And so, for example, ZeroHash now supports what we call multi-chain assets on USDC, including things like Arbitrum and Optimism and Solana. So really reducing those costs of payment such that Crypto is a payment mechanism and micropayments now become a thing of reality versus something that we speak about. The second thing is this kind of web 3.0 world that we're now moving into. But I think it's the first time that payment groups have realized that crypto 
as a payment mechanism is not just maybe good, but it's needed, it's required. So to make that tangible, and I think there's going to be lots of different use cases, but if you look at, for example, NFTs, so an NFT that is built on Ethereum, a customer wants to buy that NFT. Now, I want to swipe my credit card and buy that NFT. For the first time, the payment groups have realized, hey, we actually need a mechanism to convert USD into Ethereum. And so sometimes when we're talking to these payment groups, we say, look, it's almost like when you entered in growing geography. So when you first enabled, for example, rupee in India, you would say there's a buyer here in the US and then you are buying from a vendor in, in India. You need that conversion to occur, right? So it's a geographical expansion. What we're starting to see with Web3 is this kind of a, a metaverse and NFTs and whatever thesis you want to use is that crypto versus, for example, in this analogy, it's not rupee, it's Ethereum. This is the first time that payment groups have realized that they need access to crypto as a payment mechanism because you can only buy that NFT if you're actually buying it Ethereum. So it's this gateway to this new world versus a gateway to this new geography. And I think you're going to see mass, mass, mass adoption in the payment space and crypto being used really, like for the first time, properly as a payment mechanism. I am 100% in alignment with that, actually. I do think that it's become this light bulb just switched on, I think, within the last three years, within the payment ecosystem, where they realize that it was more of a necessity than a nice to have. Hence why we're seeing some of these announcements coming out with large investments within the space. So 100% agree with you on that. That's a great point. You've mentioned a couple of things around zero hash, your value proposition, your key focus, your market expansion, and what you're potentially going to focus on. I'm curious to know what else is next for zero hash? Like what's getting you excited about the next frontier for yourselves outside of the exciting things you're doing today? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is building out and continuing to evolve our, our staking infrastructure. So I think one of the big drivers of just broader adoption of staking as a requirement from the platforms that we service is, for example, the changes that are happening with Ethereum. So effectively ETH 2.0. So building out and continuing to scale out the ability for all of the proof of stake assets that we have today to enable our end customers to be able to offer and to be able to stake those assets in a really, really seamless way. I think the second big bucket is enhancing and continuing to scale out our NFT infrastructure. So today we do a bunch of on-chain transactions. We support the three major chains that NFTs are built on, which is Polygon, Matic, Solana, and Ethereum. And we also support the ability to interact with smart contracts on those chains, such that if you send, for example, ETH, you have this thing called input data, and that allows you to basically interact with the smart contract, and then the NFT is yours. We're scaling out our infrastructure to enable customers to be able to store those NFTs that they purchase on platforms such as OpenSea and others through ZeroHash. Effectively, what that means is that if you have a brokerage account such as Tastyworks, you hold all your stocks there. You may hold your bank accounts there. Now you can hold your NFTs there. And that's one of the things that we're really excited about, which is making it really, really easy for people to intersect with NFTs. And often NFTs, people think of NFTs as this joke about just a picture. I think it's going to evolve very quickly. The, the value that we see in NFTs is when an NFT gives you rights to something. So by owning the NFT, you get something in return. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of growth in the NFT space. So if you have a membership of an exchange, for example, you get lower rates. So by having the NFT, 
it allows you to get lower rates. So that kind of ownership piece, I think, is going to evolve. And we're very, very bullish on how the NFT story is going to evolve beyond pictures of bored apes. Very cool. All really exciting things. So Edward, we have reached the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining. This was really interesting for me and also educational. Where can people find you? Very easy. You can find me on LinkedIn, which is just Edward Woodford. You can go to our website, which is just zerohash.com, or you can email me. It's just very simply edward at zerohash.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks again, Edward. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, please feel free to leave a review and rating. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please visit aws.amazon.com slash startups.